Welcome to A Valid Podcast. I'm Jennifer Shveta Jordan, and I'd like you to meet Diane and Debbie. For more than 20 years, they did just about everything together. They sat at the same big wooden table for dinner, went out dancing, and vacationed together. They lived in what had been a three-story red brick old priest's rectory. It was built right around 1900 in urban Pittsburgh. The building had been converted to a group home with the Emmaus community of Pittsburgh. Both Diane and Debbie spent most of their adult lives there. Debbie was a jokester, and Diane was her foil. She'd respond to Debbie's clowning with a few words, a knock it off, or a raspberry. (laughs) But in January 2021, obviously one of the most challenging times in our world's recent history, Debbie died. She was 50. Though her death was unrelated to COVID, the pandemic made it difficult, as it was for so many others, to mourn together as before. Emmaus community sought ways to support Diane and the staff who were closest to her. One of the staff people had a friend make a teddy bear from Deb's pajamas for Diane. And they still celebrate the life of Debbie all the time, with laughter at the joy she brought the world. Like in the car on the right, sometimes you look in the back and she's just doing her little Deb dance, which this is it. And I know they can't see me, but this, that shoulder shake. She, that was, say there's a lot of shoulder. Yeah, there's a lot of shoulder. Diane and Debbie were the first people who I really got to know when I started working at Emmaus Community 17 years ago. I've been a direct support professional. So lucky for me, I got to do with them many of the things they've done. The vacations, the dances, and enjoying some really great meals. And as in the case of Debbie, I've grieved losses in our community, too. Today, we consider how strong community bonds, shared activities, and rituals can help people with intellectual disabilities, and really all of us, to make the most of life and to weather storms together. The concept of community is at the core of what we're looking at in this third season of A Valid Podcast. We've been using a more academic term, social inclusion, of people with intellectual disabilities. That is where people with disabilities such as Down syndrome have varied job opportunities, get invited to bake casseroles for Thanksgiving dinner like everyone else in families, and when loved ones are at the end of life, to have a role in memorializing them. In previous shows, we've considered how society does and doesn't support healthy inclusion when it comes to dating, marriage, and living alone. Today, we'll visit Emmaus community and learn about the evolution of group homes. For the most part, they've been hidden in plain sight. And I need to share a warning. There are in this episode some references to abuse of people with disabilities and even murder, which could trigger some people. Now this break. A Valid Podcast is brought to you by All Abilities Media. The project is a collaboration between Underbridge Press and the Center for Media Innovation at Point Park University. Support from Pittsburgh Philanthropies has allowed us to amplify the voices and increase work opportunities, and there's many more people we can reach together. If you'd like to help create more podcasts like this, please go to allabilitiesmedia.org forward slash donate. Once again, that's allabilitiesmedia.org.
Let's take a few moments to explore what spurred the creation of group homes. Until a half century ago in America, doctors often recommended that children with intellectual disabilities, such as Down syndrome, be placed in institutions. These were sprawling medical campuses in remote locations. Many children would grow up and live out their lives there, apart from the outside world. And our society allowed this warehousing of people, out of sight. In the early 70s, news reporters exposed living conditions at institutions. Among the worst, New York's Willowbrook School. Children there were injected with hepatitis for medical research. The school technically had a capacity of 4,000 people, but some 6,000 lived there at one point. The situation appalled the public and politicians. Then more investigations and news reports revealed similar horror stories from institutions across America. That includes Pennsylvania, where I'm speaking to you from now. Disability advocate Marcia Blanco had a role in deinstitutionalizing the state. We had known for some time that conditions at Western Center, which was our last remaining state institution for people with intellectual disabilities here in southwestern Pennsylvania, were not at all what there should be. And there were hundreds of people uh, with intellectual disabilities living there. The staff there had lost their sense of uh, the humanness of the individuals who were living there. And some people had been living there for 30 and 40 years. I remember an incident that was recorded by uh, uh, the state policeman who was, was undercover uh, when someone um, dropped a slice of watermelon on the floor. The staff thought that it was fun to make him lie on that piece of watermelon and um, with, with his body tried to, to clean up the floor. Uh, people were, were struck um, by staff people. Uh, we had two individuals die uh, in the dental chair while having um, their teeth cleaned. Um, I could go on and on, but it makes me very emotional to even go back to that time. As a result of that report, a board that I have served on, Disability Rights Pennsylvania, uh, sued the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania to close Western Center. The lawsuit went on in federal court uh, for years. It ended in a settlement, but during that period of time, my family was harassed. Um, I had calls at night, anonymous calls, saying that um, they knew where my children went to school, and it was a pretty scary time. Marsha's words are from an award-winning interview with Erin Gannon, host of our sister podcast, Look Who's Here. As the tide turned away from institutions, people with intellectual disabilities went on to live with their families or in their own homes or group homes like Emmaus. That's where Erin lives. Emmaus's executive director, Karen Jacobson, speaks with a lot of passion about the work and the community. Here she is talking with Erin Gannon about her Emmaus journey and how the pandemic amped up challenges that already existed in the disability service field. How did you get involved with Emmaus? I was working with children with disabilities at the time, and a friend of mine uh, gave me an article from a newspaper here in Pittsburgh and said, uh, look, um, look what's happening in Pittsburgh. There's a new organization called Emmaus Community, and I think that you and your husband might be interested 
uh, in working there. They only had one house and two residents at the time. Uh, so I started volunteering and one thing led to another. Then I became a direct support professional in 1995 and I've been with the Mays ever since. Can you tell me about someone who has been a big influence in your life and a role model? That's a great question. Um, I'm going to say that Emmaus's founder, Lorraine Wagner, had a profound influence on me, and she has been a role model uh, from, from day one. And here's why. You know, Lorraine, you know the story. Lorraine and Ken Wagner raised four children, yeah. right? And their youngest daughter has a developmental disability. What impressed me so much about Lorraine is that she loved her daughter so much that she wanted to really start something that would make the world a better place, but not just for her daughter, but for all people who needed a place like Emmaus. And so that, that was one thing that impressed me. But then what I learned from Lorraine is that nothing comes easy. And so there's always a little bit of a fight to get, you know, people don't like change, right? And so there's a lot of work to be done in this field. People still don't understand, like some people in the general public don't understand about uh, community living homes, that they're just family style homes where you're living in everyday life, like I live in everyday life and you go to work and I go to work and you have housemates and I have housemates. So Lorraine taught me to never stop fighting to do the right thing, even when it's hard. So to, to, I learned how to speak up and use my voice and my advocacy. I learned that from Lorraine. I learned to not be afraid to take on a hard challenge. You know, I, I learned by watching her build this organization from, you know, one house with one resident to when she retired and I became the executive director in 2008 you know, the program had grown to many, many homes and many people and many services um, because she never stopped fighting for the right thing. But there is still so, so, so much work to be done. So much work to be done. Even in our state, Erin, you know, um, there are over 13,000 people with developmental disabilities waiting for services. We have a lot of work to do still. So I, I will always be grateful to Lorraine for starting Emmaus and for teaching me all the things that she taught me. And I hope I, I hope I can carry on that tradition and teach the people coming behind me how to pick up the torch and how to pick up the, you know, pick up the fight, pick up the advocacy. There's a lot of work to be done. What changes were made at Emmaus because of COVID quarantine? Our whole world changed. Because as you know, at Emmaus, we are all about participating in the life of the community. So we are out and about and on the go, right? We go to restaurants and movie theaters and shopping. And then the community got hit with this virus called COVID that nobody had ever heard of. And they told us to stay home for two weeks. And we were beside ourselves. <laughs> we thought, how are we gonna stay home for two weeks? And we really didn't want anybody to get sick. So we said, okay, we're gonna do that. We're gonna be very careful and not go anywhere. And we're gonna stay inside 
and we're going to do everything that, that the Allegheny County Health Department tells us to do. We're gonna wash our hands frequently. We're gonna wear masks and we're gonna stay home and we're gonna keep distance. And we're, we couldn't, we had to stop allowing visitors to our homes. And then we learned pretty quickly that two weeks was not going to be long enough. We had to stop our home visits. People weren't going home to visit their families because we didn't want to bring a virus home to our loved ones or have them bring it to us. So visiting had to be suspended for a long, long time. Um, we had to implement all kinds of new trainings so that everybody could understand the seriousness of COVID. Um, and why we needed to do all these things. And then one of the best things that happened from it is we all had to learn new technology, right? So for example, this interview is being held via Zoom as were many, many, many of our activities through the year at Emmaus. So we had dance parties via Zoom, we had prayer services via Zoom, we had arts and crafts. And that way we were able to keep people from being too isolated. Something I want to add that I want to not know, but to learn about you. Okay. Because I learned so much from you. You helped me get through my personal life that I've been, been going through a lot. So you've been the bestest friend I ever dreamed of having. And you're always there when I needed you. Well, thank you, Aaron, for and saying that. Thank you for my heart. Well, you're very welcome. It's my privilege to be part of your life journey. Thank you for speaking with me. I'm talking with Karen Jacobson, the CEO of Emmaus Community of Pittsburgh. And thanks to Erin Gannon for that interview. The waiting list Karen referred to consists of people with intellectual disabilities and autism waiting for Medicaid funding. Those dollars would be used to support their housing and community participation. The national waiting list is 850,000 people long. We're back in a moment. At Point Park University in downtown Pittsburgh, we understand there's no substitute for real-world experience and career-building connections. Visit pointpark.edu works to learn more about Point Park's innovative co-op program. Career ready. That's the point. Point Park University. Pointpark.edu forward slash works. COVID multiplied a severe shortage of staff serving people with intellectual disabilities. Karen at Emmaus and other group home CEOs have now found themselves working again in the homes with residents as direct support positions have gone unfilled. Service providers like Emmaus said in a public source article that even a $1.2 billion plan Pennsylvania is considering to lift worker wages doesn't scratch the surface of the community's needs. Can the underfunded, understaffed model be sustained? How far have we come from the institutional era in terms of the social will to care for people with intellectual disabilities? Back to Willowbrook for a second. In 2020, the New York Times reported that many of the 2,300 Willowbrook alumni still alive suffered from mistreatment, but now in group homes. The Times found that in 2019, there were nearly 100 reported allegations of physical abuse by group home workers against their residents. The world in general isn't always kind to group home residents. 
Some people legally fight the establishment of even one group home in their neighborhoods. And in some cases, when a group home is there, neighbors have been known to question staff about residents' private medical information and share their own complaints about their tax dollars supporting the home's residents. And yet, some group homes are totally embraced, and residents are part of block parties. Others are just kind of ignored. People with intellectual disabilities are arguably the most vulnerable group in our population. And there are cases where they've even been killed. This next break speaks to that. Again, this could trigger some listeners. Hello, I'm James Shirley. I'm working with the All Abilities Media Project at the Center for Media Innovation at Point Park University. And I want to express my thanks to the Heinz Endowments, their small arts initiative awarded All Abilities Media funding for a documentary I proposed. I want to tackle a dark subject. And the fact that people with disabilities are sometimes killed by their parents and caregivers. The topic is personal to me. Two boys I knew who were autistic were drowned by their mother. Each year on March 1st, advocates host Disability Day of Mourning events. They remember people around the world who died the year before. The documentary will help this commemoration last beyond one day. Thanks again to the Heinz Endowments. If you'd like to support the documentary, please visit allabilitiesmedia.org. Thank you. In recent years, a new storm has been brewing for people with intellectual disabilities. As many people with Down syndrome are living longer, it's become clear they're at greater risk of developing dementia than the general population. And that's going to be a lot of people who need services and cared for and and I don't know, you know, how that's going to happen right now, you know, because the funding is difficult already. That's Diane Sunderland. She's producing a documentary about dementia among people with Down syndrome. Her brother, a one-time Emmaus resident, died of dementia. I mean, he was pure love, and that's that was the, the my, uh, you know, the exceptional opportunity that I had in life was to experience that joy. You can hear Diane's full conversation with disability advocate Elisa Grishman on a bonus episode of A Valid Podcast. Our bonus episodes invite you to learn from the perspectives of people who support those with intellectual disabilities, like Diane. Whereas the stories in our numbered serial episodes, like the one you're listening to now, focus on the voices of people with intellectual and learning disabilities themselves. You'll find the bonus episodes on the same podcast platform where you're hearing A Valid Podcast now. A Valid Podcast is on Unabridged Press's channels on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, and others. Growing up mixed race, Charmaine Fury says she never completely fit in. Generally, I got to be Black if I was around Black people. You know, someone might say you won't understand because you're not all the way Black. I didn't necessarily get to be Japanese around Japanese people. And despite having two white grandparents, I was never a white person. So that meant finding home was hard. That's coming up in season four of Two Lives. We're about to walk into Emmaus community to learn more about Diane and Debbie. Liz Reed interviewed Diane, as well as interviewing two of her direct support providers, Penny Wilson and Lauren Zack. Throughout the conversation, you'll hear some breathing overlapping the speakers, 
That's Diane kind of processing conversations by mouthing some words others are speaking. And sometimes you may hear her sighing because, well, we're pushing her dinner time. As Liz unpacks equipment, Diane geeks out about tech a little. What was this? This is a cable. It's called an XLR cable. Cable? Yeah. It, it's what plugs in the microphone to the recorder. Hmm. I got a TV. Oh, yes, cool. That's a big TV, too. Yeah, yeah. That's bigger than mine. <laughs> Hi, I'm Penny. I work in um, finance and also am a direct support professional. I am Lauren. Um, so I currently am a direct support professional. It just makes me happy being able to see them accomplish things that they haven't been able to do previously or something that maybe makes them nervous and they're able to work it out. Being able to see that and help them reach that goal is really cool. I had just moved to Pennsylvania in January of 2020, started working here, worked with Di Deb and Diane four days a week, like that was my life. Um, I have worked in other agencies and it's very impersonal. Um, you see the way that the, all the residents interact with each other so you know that it's not one house and another house but they're all together even though they don't all live together. Can you say what are some of your favorite things about Emmaus community? Tammy Lynn. That's one of your staff. Yeah, you like Tammy. What about Marnie? Your friends. Did you go golfing with Marnie? Yeah. Did you feel like Deb was a sister to you? No, she's not. What was she? A friend. Was okay. she a really good friend? What do you have there? In March. Is that the calendar for Deb? How did you guys come up with the idea to make the, the photo calendar? We had been taking different trips with them and just different fun activities. Do you remember where we were that day? Yeah. Where? Keystone. Yeah, good That's job. right. Hey. Keystone State Park? I love that one shot of her grinning with the ostrich. Look at her. What's she doing there? I'm alone with her head. Yeah, she put the envelope on her head. And one of those Amazon envelopes. She's walking around with it on her head. Deb was humorously sneaky. She took great joy in simple things like jello and applesauce. Including. Pudding. Can you talk a little bit more about her her illness and her health struggles? I mean, she had a lot of health issues. Yeah, yeah. she she'd been doing actually really well. Um, they, she, she was there was a slow decline, but she was actually on hospice. And that's when the hospice nurse had advised that she was. Um, starting to decline to where she was, I guess, considered actively dying. So um, that was something. And so we talked about it, right, Diane? We talked about that that Debbie might not be here when you woke up, but we wanted you to be able to say goodbye to her. So did I wake you up that morning? Yeah. Really early. Did you sit next to Debbie? Yeah, I did. Did you... Rub her hair. Yeah. Did you give her a kiss? 
It's not a bad thing you gave her a kiss goodbye, right? Yeah, she grabbed me. Yes, she did. And that's when she passed, is when I was holding her. They did a, because it was COVID, a virtual prayer service all together um, with all of Emmaus and um, the hospice services um, spiritual director provided support in that too. And I think that was really good for me to see that we were all supported, but it was really good for me to watch Deb, or Deb, watch Diane um, interact with people and see her receive that support from so many people. Can you, you, you touched, started touching on this earlier, but can you talk about the ways in which um, society tries to sort of like insulate and protect people with intellectual disabilities from loss rather than helping them process it? It gets frustrating. It, I will say this just personally, it gets frustrating because I'm like, they're not inept. They, they can process emotion. They can do jobs. They... They laugh, they have memories, they have emotions. Diane, um, you know, has dealt with death a lot. She understands it. Does she process it the same way that I or Lauren or you do? No, but who processes, like the way I do is going to be different than the way Lauren processes grief or the way you process grief. Everybody processes their grief differently. So I think it's just a very, it's an injustice to the residents who, they may not handle it in the best way, but who does? How has the death and grief process been similar to or different from other experiences of death you've had with someone? Like what is universal and what is different? Like working through the grief and the processing of all of this was um, really recognizing the things that Deb had taught me in her own nonverbal ways. Um, like the finding the joys in those simple things, the... Um, just being attentive to the person in front of you like she was never worried about somebody that wasn't here she was worried about you um and focused on you but i think also grieving myself and grieving with diane um changed that too because diane also has an intellectual disability and so helping her process that in her own ways um and us processing it together because then her whole life was up rooted in it was so quiet in this house because Deb was the noise like we didn't know what to do because we were always focused on Deb and so like trying to for me taking what I learned from Deb and trying to then help Diane pick up and create her own routine and doing our own thing just the two of us when it was the two of us and um, really being able to focus then on Diane and um, learning from Diane now too, so. Um, do you think Deb was happy when she died? Yeah. How are you doing? Upset. Yeah. What do you do when you're upset and you miss Deb? I yelled to Deb. Do you talk to Deb in the sunshine? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, when you see the sunshine. That started real fast. I don't even know how it started, but she 
Diane would look outside and see the sunshine and start talking to Deb and be like, hi Deb, hey Deb. And she's way more attentive to when the sun is out now. Um, so we always said like that was, that was one of the things that Deb started doing towards the end was singing You Are My Sunshine more. Like she hadn't done that for a long time. Is there anything else you want to say about Deb? No. Is that okay? Is it dinner time? Mo's doesn't close till after you're already in your room, so they're not going to close down. So we're good, okay? Yep. This worked out really well. That was very nice of you to, to share your thoughts and ideas. Right. I appreciate it. And thank you to both of you. Thank you. Yeah. Hey, I'll see you at Golden China. I get you, China. China. All right, Riz. I know, we're going to buy. Bye. All right, Riz. I like you too. So is them. When I heard Diane first talk about seeing Debbie in the sun, a group of us were on Zoom watching church, and I was blown away. She was laughing so hard, and she really screamed, Son! Deb! And you know, I have no reason to believe that she didn't actually see her. It kind of goes along with the Emmaus story in the Bible that our community is named for. Two friends are walking along a road. Jesus joins them, but they don't know it's Jesus until they're sharing a meal, and boom, they recognize it's Jesus. So that idea of sharing meals, having community, and at times, seeing the sacred in that, well, I think I see the sun coming out. A valid podcast comes to you from the All Abilities Media Project, based at the Center for Media Innovation at Point Park University in downtown Pittsburgh. You could advance your career with a graduate degree from Point Park University. Choose from more than 20 Point Park masters and doctoral degrees. Learn online at your convenience or at Point Park's downtown Pittsburgh campus. Visit pointpark.edu slash graduate. I'm so glad you got to meet Diane and her staff. I have a couple more awesome people to introduce you to. The first speaks very directly to some of the issues we covered in the last segment. She's Professor of Intellectual Disability and Palliative Care, Irena Tuffrey vena she leads bereavement support groups for people with intellectual disabilities. And in 2021, she received a University Alliance Award for this. The awarding organization said Irena's work creates impactful solutions to one of the most difficult problems our world faces. And she does it on Zoom. Should we talk about death? I'm always one for being open. So it's really worth talking to someone then, even if it is not Definitely. Mm -hmm. It might be hard to begin with, but it does get easier in time. That was a conversation Irena had with Rosie Jostra, who has Down syndrome. Irena's full interview for A Valid Podcast with disability advocate Elisa Grishman is a bonus episode this season. And one more bonus episode to tell you about. We learned earlier in this series that people with intellectual disabilities are seven times more likely to be sexually assaulted than the general population. To a lesser degree, though, people with intellectual disabilities have been accused and convicted of sex crimes. That's where Sean McGill comes in. 
with education and hope. I think historically, the community has viewed people with disabilities as not being able to learn things. And that is so untrue. Sean spoke with Dara Thompson for A Valid Podcast. So all season three here on A Valid Podcast, we've been considering social inclusion, the ability to engage in a community fully. Have we hit peak social inclusion? If you've been listening, I think you'll agree that uh, probably not. What can we do to get there? I leave you, dear listener, with that question. I hope you'll stick with All Abilities Media, Public Source, Unabridged Press, all of us who are working to draw you into a world you may know nothing about. In 2022, I'll be sharing more stories from Emmaus in a series of columns. Thanks to Generous Foundations, All Abilities Media is also supporting an Emmaus resident who will create a photo essay about her life. And finally, we'll be hosting an online podcast salon. That's for people with intellectual disabilities who want a chance to interview others. Learn more at allabilitiesmedia.org. Thank you so much for listening to A Valid Podcast. This work comes to you from the All Abilities Media Project. And from interviews to music and cover art, the majority of us producing it have one or more disabilities. Others on the team don't identify as having disabilities. Hallie Stockton of the news outlet Public Source edited this podcast. You can find full transcripts and great photos of a valid podcast subjects at publicsource.org. Public Source has been a great collaborator in covering the disability community. Liz Reed of Jewelltown Productions is our audio engineer and sound designer. Disability advocates Dr. Rachel Callum-Whitman and Aaron Gannon consulted on the content of this podcast. Mick Fisher with Creative Citizen Studios made our cover art. George Castleberry shared some of his original harmonica and other music with us. Jane Andrasek, a accompanist with the Woodlands Foundation, played piano. The All Abilities Media Project is based at the Center for Media Innovation at Point Park University. CMI Director Dr. Andrew Conti is a co-executive producer of this podcast, along with me, Jennifer Shveta Jordan. I also publish Unabridged Press and manage All Abilities Media. Learn more at allabilitiesmedia.org. <laughs>